Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We will begin reading together in verse 19. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth as an apostle. And he's trying to reason through a very difficult dispute in which there are some who, with a better understanding, would engage in certain Christian freedoms that those with a less developed understanding were concerned, offended, and even distracted by. And he's made the argument in chapters 8 and chapters 9 to this point in our time together on Sunday mornings. We have read the argument that there are Christian freedoms that a Christian person must be willing to lay down and set aside in order to serve people with the gospel of Jesus. That being a Christian and doing things that are important for God's kingdom is not merely about what is permissible, what is acceptable, but that being a Christian and accomplishing things for God's kingdom depend on what we're willing to sacrifice and lay down in service to that kingdom. And we'll develop that a little bit more this morning. But read Paul's great explanation of this in verse 19, and then we'll go through the end of the chapter. He writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And that's as far as we'll go this morning. Let's begin in verse 24. Again, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And then the imperative. Here is the, here's the challenge. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. If you have watched a race uh, before uh, on television, uh, perhaps this is kind of a strange statement because when someone is at the level of competition to where they're, they're on television and people are watching, everyone has trained very hard to get to that point. Everyone is running very hard in the race. But if you go and you watch a local race, if you go and you watch a local 5K, a, a local high school or junior high cross-country race, a couple miles, doesn't really matter, you will find uh, various levels of effort in the race. And some people uh, at the front will obviously be running with the confidence that they are going to win, or at least that they are going to compete to win. And then there are other people running very hard who are not at the front 
but are clearly running with the conviction that they're going to try their best regardless of whether or not they're going to win. But then intermingled in any large group of runners is a number of people who are not there with the intention of giving maximum effort. They're there because mom or dad made them do it, because a friend asked them to. They're there because it'll be good for their health. It's something they can do to be a part of a team. All those reasons may be fine for running in a race. But Paul is calling our attention when we think of runners in a race to the type of runner who is clearly running with an objective of winning. In other words, imagine a race, and when you think of it, think of specifically the runner who is going to win and the effort required to do so. And then he tells us, run like that. I think what he means then is not that we should run with the competitive streak that would see us succeed at the expense of someone else. I don't think he's drawing out here the heart of competition that would see someone victorious over another. I think what he is drawing out here is the desire to win and the effort required to obtain a crown. In Corinth, every three years they would have their version of the Olympic Games. They were called the Isthmian Games. As opposed to every four, they were every three. They were second in the empire only to the Olympic Games. This happened in the city which Paul was writing to. So he changes to the sports metaphor because it was a culture that they grew up in. They understood what this meant. And here he is writing and imploring Christian people when they consider their Christian walk, and in the context of chapter 9, when they consider their part in advancing the kingdom of God on the earth, to try as hard as they possibly can, as if they were in a race needing to win. That's the context. Again, here is verse 22 of the immediately preceding verses. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This is the context. When a Christian person, and you know if you're sitting here today whether or not you're a Christian or not, if you're not, then I'm not speaking to you right this moment. But when a Christian person takes a moment to consider whether or not they are exerting the proper amount of effort and energy into advancing the kingdom of God, into sharing the gospel, into seeing some saved, that's the context here. He says, run like the people who have committed their very lives to winning, to winning this race. His next phrase says, everyone who competes for this prize is temperate in all things. To prepare for the Isthmian Games in Corinth, it was a minimum of 10 months of training. And this was widely known so that historians recorded it. 10 months of dedicated training. 10 months of dietary work. 10 months of strength and conditioning. 10 months of racing and building and preparation. For us, the Olympic Games, uh, what is it? A, a, a full-time job, three years, four years of preparation, a lifetime before that. So it should be in some way more relatable to us, but in other ways less relatable because these were often people from normal walks of life like you and I, and the games were going to happen in their city, and if they wanted to participate... This was the dedication that they would have to exert. And Paul says, when you think of your Christian walk, run that way. 
So let's begin with the simple question that we can think on for a second, and I'll give you a second to think of the answer. Very broad at first. Are you working as hard as you can at anything? Anything in life. Not have you ever worked as hard as you can at anything in life in the past? It's not what I'm asking. Right now, in July, in the year of our Lord, 2021, are you working at anything as hard as you possibly can? If the answer is no, then I have an invitation for you. God has invited you to be a part of his kingdom and an ambassador for him on this earth. This world is dying. This world is perishing. You could ask an atheist or you could ask a Christian. They'll give you the same conclusion. This world is temporary. God has invited you to be a child of his, an inheritor of an eternal kingdom, and an ambassador to those who would perish with this world. He has invited you to a ministry, to a service, to a job. And he promises you that if you commit yourself to this job, he will reward you. This is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 4. When he writes, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards, managers of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found faithful, but with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul envisions a time when he will stand before God and God will issue the verdict of whether or not he did a good job or not. And he's not excused simply because he doesn't know of anything that he's doing wrong. That doesn't mean he's okay. That doesn't mean he's excused. Why? Because he will stand before God and God will tell him whether or not he did well. Not just whether or not he committed sin, but whether or not he did well with this commission, this stewardship. Sometimes in life there are just times and seasons where it doesn't feel like you're really even given the opportunity to do anything worthwhile. Almost as if you're spinning your wheels, as if there's, it's not as if you don't have any heart to accomplish anything, but it feels as if there's almost nothing to accomplish. Almost nothing to work toward, nothing to work for. Or perhaps the only things that you can think of to work toward or to work for seem so far-fetched, so unlikely, that you consider whether or not it's worth your time to invest in it at all. If you are not working as hard as you can at anything in life, this is worthwhile. God has invited you to share in his kingdom, to share in his promises. This is worthwhile. This is not time wasted. This is not mindless work without any hope of prosper. This is not some far-flung commission. This is a great commission. He would commission you. He would reward you. He would lead you. This is worth working for. But to others, we might sincerely answer, I am working as hard as I can at several things. And I think that that is respectable. I think that that's honorable. What are you working hard at? 
Has the Lord commissioned you to do this? These are the evaluations that a Christian must ask themselves. Is what you're doing to the glory of God? Does it have a purpose for God? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. The good news is I am not your judge. I don't get to evaluate that. But God will. Consider this from Luke chapter 13, verse 24, the words of the Lord. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Strive. Fight. I fought. Do you know what all these words have in common? They all are the exact same word found in verse 25 of chapter 9. Now when we read verse 25, it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Everyone who competes. The word compete is agonizomai. Agonizomai. We get the English word agony from it. But in Greek, it meant to compete in the games. To enter the games. That's why we translate it compete. But it was more specific. It was to compete in something specific. So when Paul, even when Christ uses this word in the New Testament, they have in mind a specific type of sports metaphor. A wrestling, a combat, a competition. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. And then, again, there's the idea. Are you competing for the prize or are you just paid the entry fee, loping along? No, no. The people who are trying to win, the people who are striving to enter through the narrow gate in the words of Jesus... They are temperate in all things. They consider everything that their life is about in light of what they have committed themselves to doing, to accomplishing. Um, there are no uh, sprinters that are going to win Olympic gold this summer who have thought about their diet and just, eh, no big deal. I'll eat whatever I want. You can't win the Olympic gold as a sprinter in today's day and age if your diet is not something you're willing to be temperate in. Every year there are stories about Olympians who are not professional athletes because how many of the Olympic sports correspond to some high-paying professional sport that we all watch every week or every month or every year? Not many of them. Are any of us watching Olympic Diving? Are we watching the divers throughout the year? I'm not. Maybe you are. I'm not watching any of that. Archery? Are we watching archery throughout the year? These people are not multi-million dollar athletes. When they think of their vocation and how they structure their day, they're doing it under the umbrella of, I have a goal and everything is going to fall subservient to this goal because this prize is going to require temperance in all things. Self-control, discipline in all things. How many times in the New Testament does Jesus speak as if he is attempting to discourage people from following him? Here's Luke chapter 14. 
Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus want hatred towards our family members? Hatred in the sense of subservient to him. Secondary to him. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Have you ever thought about that? Do you have what it takes to finish this? Lest after he has laid the foundation of this tower he would build, he's not able to finish and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other's still a great way off, he sends delegations and asks for peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does it seem like Jesus is almost discouraging people from briefly and nonchalantly signing up to be his disciples? Does Jesus not want any disciples? Oh, I believe he does. But disciples of Jesus Christ are going to be faithful to his commission and in order to be faithful to the commission of Jesus Christ, you have to run like you're trying to win a prize. Everything else in life must fall under the temperance, the judgment, the self-control, the disciplined of what it's going to take to run well. So much so that the word in the Greek becomes the English word agony to describe the training and the discipline involved. Verse 25 continued, now they do it, the runners do it, the Olympic qualifiers, the Isthmian Games winners, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. You want to know what it was? It was a little pine wreath. That was the crown. It was figs, I think, in the Olympic Games, but in the Isthmian Games, it was a little pine circlet. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Here is Leon Morris, a Bible commentator who I would recommend to you in 1958. This is what he writes this verse. The strenuous self-denial of the athlete in training for his fleeting reward is a rebuke to all half hearted, flabby Christian service. Notice that the athlete denies himself many lawful pleasures. The Christian must avoid not only definite sin, but anything that hinders his complete effectiveness. He knew what he was doing writing in the 1950s. Do we think that what it means to be a Christian is to not sin? Is that what we think? Do we think that what it is to be a Christian means to place faith in Jesus Christ and then do our best not to do evil? Is that what we think? Have we transformed the calling of Jesus Christ into a remade version of Old Testament legalism, of rule keeping? Do we think that to be a Christian is to simply try not to do the wrong thing, the evil thing? It's more than that. Infinitely more than that. It's greater than Judaism. It's greater than rule keeping. 
The gospel is the full redemption of one's life in Jesus Christ. Just listen to how the gospel is spoken of in the New Testament. Here was 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where we were just in previous weeks. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? who you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? That's not rule keeping. That's ownership. To be a Christian is not merely to be a rule keeper. It's to be the servant. It's to be the slave. It's to be the property of God who has redeemed you in Christ. Redeemed as in bought you back. Purchased your life from destruction. Do you not know that you're not your own? Here is Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are a new creation. Not merely a law-abiding old creation, a new creation. Does this sound like rule-keeping? One more. Here's John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus speaking. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Christian people are literally spoken of as having been reborn, newly born, new life. God is not interested in your rule keeping. Israel could not keep God's rules. If by rule keeping you could be saved, then Jesus was vanity on the cross. By rule keeping you are damned. And your life on the other side of salvation should be about fully committing yourself to Jesus Christ as his property, as his creation, as his child. How much effort are you running with? The greatest I have ever felt athletically the greatest memory I have ever made for myself athletically would not be remembered by anyone else not surprising uh, I was in a 4x4 four four track race I think it was even in junior high and we were racing under the lights at a big invitational and I was the anchor, the fourth runner, the guy who was supposed to win uh, at the end. And uh, we were not a very good track team, but we had three or four guys that could run pretty well. And uh, we got off the first leg, second leg. Um, on the third leg, we were in the top three of a very tightly contested pack. And I was getting ready to run, and you're jumping at the line and shaking your, yourself out, getting ready to go. And fans are cheering. The 4x4 four four is the last event in any track meet. Men's 4x4 four four is the last, so whoever's left has stayed to see this. And uh, the third runner in our leg on the back stretch was running, and someone's leg behind him caught the baton and knocked it out of his hand. And it stayed in lane, the baton did. So he could pick it up and he could run, but he stopped and he turned around and a whole group of 13 and 14 year olds running as fast as they can just left him behind all of a sudden. And there was this, oh, feeling. And audibly sound from the crowd. And he picked it back up and he ran and we were clearly out of it and clearly done. And I remember waiting to get the baton as all the other runners went. And I remember getting so excited and aggressive and angry almost. 
because there was no need to conserve anything and I could just run as hard as I possibly could. No one could say it was bad strategy or a bad idea. I knew I could just get the baton and run. And so I did. And I took off very fast and started to make up ground. And around the first corner, my track coach, Ed Bell, for those of you who remember Mr. Bell, is yelling at me from behind the fence, pace yourself, pace yourself. And I didn't listen at all because... What was the point? What well, pace myself for what? We're in last place by 50 yards. There's no point in pacing myself. And right beside Mr. Bell is my father. They were friends standing. And it was the funniest thing. I didn't laugh, but Mr. Bell saying, pace yourself with a stopwatch. And my dad saying, go get him, go get him, go get him. Yeah. And that's the attitude I, I took the baton with in the first place. I had nothing to lose. I don't know if Mr. Bell turned at my dad and said, would you shut up and let me do it? <laughs> and I, man, I felt good and I was making up time. I got all the way around the third corner and my legs just stopped feeling like legs anymore. They felt more like sandbags connected to my hips somehow. And I just kept going and I nearly caught the guy in front of me and then he had enough down the back stretch and the last 50 yards or so, I'd slowed down a lot and I thought I might even fall because I, like, it, my legs were so dead that I couldn't feel the cadence of the run anymore. My timing was weird and I just made it across the finish line and got to the grass and just laid down and stopped. And I thought, what a failure. But man, it was exhilarating and exciting. This is took off and you hear the crowd as they see he's going to try to do it he's going to try to catch this guy it was exciting and they were excited there was no caution there was no uncertainty there was no hesitancy why we finished last nobody remembers finishing last but you know what after it was all done I asked coach Bell what my time was at the fastest time I ran all year fastest 400 whether a split or an individual that had run all year why? Because every other time I'd run, I had run to try to pace myself with insecurity and uncertainty. And I never had enough left at the end to make up for everything that I was selling myself short of at the beginning. However strong I would feel coming down the back stretch was never enough to make up for the seconds lost in the first half when I wasn't going as hard as I possibly could. And it taught me something something that I've always remembered. You are better off trying to go as hard as you possibly can when something truly matters than trying to pace yourself to make sure you have a little left at the end. You may not agree with that, but that has profoundly shaped the way that I live. I would rather flame out at the end because I went as hard as I possibly could from the beginning than get to the end and wonder what I could have done if I had started and done the best that I possibly could. But that takes courage. That takes conviction. That takes a recklessness towards a task that is essential. And that's why Paul writes in verse 26, look at the next phrase. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Paul runs, Paul lives with conviction, not with doubt, not with fear, not with uncertainty. I run like the guy who's trying to win without hesitancy, without second guessing. As he's doing it, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I don't even judge myself. God will judge me when the race is over. I'm not checking the splits on my watch to see, was that one on time? Was that one on time? Was that one on time? I run with conviction. I run with courage. I do the best that I can. And when I get to the end, when God calls me home, He will judge whether or not it was enough. Therefore, I run with certainty. I like that. There's something real in that and courageous in that. There's something that stirs me in that. I would rather try as hard as I can and find out I didn't have enough 
strength to do the very best on the back stretch than to loaf my way through most of it and kick the final 50 yards. There's no courage in that. This takes conviction. This takes heart. This takes boldness. And there are not many things in life that you've been invited to do that require conviction and heart and boldness. But this is one of them. And this is the only one that's going to matter. Winston Churchill is a great uh, hero of mine. He took office three weeks before the Nazis had routed the British army and the French army and essentially conquered Europe. They would take France a few weeks later, but there was no resistance left to speak of. If you saw the movie Dunkirk, it was one of the most humiliating and frightening times in the history of the world. The Nazis had so thoroughly and so quickly beaten the Allies. In less than a year, they had taken all of continental Europe. And 300,000, more than 300,000 Britons, the entirety of their army, was stranded on beaches with no way for them to get home. Think about the desperation of that. No more allies to call on. America had adopted a statement of neutrality. They wouldn't enter the war for years. France, gone. Nothing. And of course, the very heroic action of Churchill and the cabinet to say, we're going to go rescue as many of our soldiers as we can from Dunkirk. And they commandeered more than 300, 400, some say 600 civilian ships to sail the journey to take as many troops back as they could. And they thought at best they might save 30,000 or 40,000 of the 300,000 on the shore. And when it was all said and done, they saved 300,000 some but the continent was lost. Of all of what we would consider Europe, only Great Britain was not fully under the influence and the power and the control of Nazi Germany. And he stood up and I want to read to you a portion of the speech that he made to the House of Commons. I should say that the leaders that he was confronting were so certain of their imminent defeat that they were pleading and begging with him to sue for peace and threatening to do whatever was in their power politically to have him removed from office if he would not sue for peace. And there were twice where he almost did sue to negotiate a peace with Nazi Germany and what would our world look like today if he had? He was called a warmonger for not suing. This is what he said to the House of Commons. Many of them divided, many of them ready to sue for peace. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, 
This island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. That's just an amazing confidence. If this kind of conviction can be mustered on the edge of defeat, how much more should Christians have courage in the face of assured victory? If this of a feeble old man in light of a continental Nazi power that was rooted and founded and that would certainly be unbending for years into the future, how much more should Christians proceed with courage and confidence, giving all their hearts to their commission with victory a certainty? Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12 For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That's 2 Timothy. That's on the verge of death. That's from prison. But he is not afraid. He is courageous and convinced. I am not ashamed for I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Where is your courage? Where is our conviction? We see it. In glimpses, where is the power of it to change lives? This is better than working hard at other things. This is more. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds his statue and he commands that everyone would fall down and worship it. And then there are three who will not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his people come to tell him there are three Israelites who you've brought to the plains of Dura to worship the statue which you've created who do not bow and who do not worship when the music plays. It says in Daniel chapter 3 verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? Or worship the gold image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I love the response of these three boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> like this is the, the king of the Babylonian empire and their answer to him is not to give some defense of their actions or some legal plea for freedom of religion or not to make some statement of all that they'd done to serve Babylon, which they had. Their answer is simply to say, we do not recognize your authority here. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, if you throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if we do go into the furnace and we don't walk back out. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
Now the rest of the story is plain and famous. But that's conviction and courage. Paul says, Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Verse 26, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I don't run with any doubt. And I fight with power and purpose. He's no shadow boxer in the corner, pumping his fists at some imaginary target. No, he runs with certainty. He swings at real enemies. This is how I win some. This is how some are saved. I do it with certainty. I take aim at real targets. It's not vanity. It's not emptiness. It's not boasting. Some of you are great gospel presenters in the shadow boxing corner of the gym where no one swings back. And no one says a word. That's not who Paul was. Paul went into the marketplace and to the synagogue. He went to the streets. He went to the assembly. He went to people's houses. He went to places who had never heard the gospel before. Places where there were no church. Be courageous. Be strong. Take a swing at a real target. This world is in conflict. It's been in conflict since Genesis chapter 3. There's a war going on. There's a struggle for the souls of men and women. God has put you into the fight. You're no longer simply a lemming following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once walked. That's Ephesians 2. You're in the fight. Swing a sword. Strike a blow. Have some guts. Verse 27. The, the tone shifts to discipline and the amount of discipline that it takes. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Now this sets the tone. The last phrase sets the tone for the next chapter. But without getting into the last phrase, which sets the tone, consider verse 27. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. The word discipline, hippopiazzo, it means to beat black and blue. Only place in the, in the Bible, hippopiazzo, to beat black and blue because he's using the fighting analogy. I break down my own body. Navy SEAL training is extremely demanding. And what it says on the recruiting page, when I looked it up this morning, it says this, Navy SEAL training is extremely demanding. It is not designed to get you in shape. You must be in peak physical condition beforehand. They have uh, BUDS uh, training in the Navy SEALs. And in the, it's broken up into segments. It's a very long schedule. And in, in one week, I believe it's the third week, they have what they call hell week. No more than four hours of sleep for the entire week, each day with more than 20 hours of physical training, running more than 200 miles over the course of the week as they weed out everyone who is not in peak physical condition, as they break down the body and they prepare it for what's to come. Paul says, I discipline my body. I beat it black and blue. He doesn't mean physically. He means everything that I do is with a focus on this. You're talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. You're talking about whether or not I'm going to be paid some money here or there. 
Uh-uh. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Dula gogeo. Bring it into subjection. It's interesting because the Greek word dula, doulos, means slave. What it means is I bring it, I enslave my body. It's a strong contrast enslaving one's body, beating it to black and blue, not physically, but through personal discipline. Strong contrast between that and the great Christian liberty and freedom referenced in chapter 8, isn't it? Chapter 8, you're free. Chapter 9, I enslave my own body for this purpose. Is the Olympic weightlifter free? Sure, he's free. Doesn't have to do any extra reps. Doesn't have to worry about his diet. He subjects his body to it. He disciplines his body to it. He enslaves his body to the schedule. It's probably true that a message like this would appeal to very few people who are not Christians. It sounds almost like too much. There is a great freedom and joy in winning a race. It is a good feeling to know that you are trying as hard as you possibly can and that the goal is noble and worthy and that you might be on the cusp. Not everybody gets that feeling in life. Jesus Christ would commission you to this fight, would bring you into this conflict. Brothers and sisters, we need ministers. We need pastors. We need men who would be pastors. We need servants. We need teachers. We need leaders. We need men and women who would be those. And the world needs the gospel. And we need people with courage. We need people who are going to try as hard as they possibly can and trust the result to the Lord. That's what Paul is calling us to. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it's now our great privilege to celebrate the baptism of another profession of faith. So many in the last 12 months. We are not working harder. You're simply blessing the fruit of our labor. Thank you for that. You are precious and gracious to let us experience any sort of fruit, reward. Father, we pray both for those who have been baptized in the last year as well as those who have been baptized over the great many years of our service together that we will not see Christian living simply as existing for our own ambitious purposes while trying not to sin. Help us to run this race with a purpose, a divine purpose, and help us to rejoice in the salvation that comes from it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.